0: Good morning, everybody. Really glad to have uh, Larry Taunton back again, and this is his uh, assistant, Benjamin, who is going to sing a little bit later on. Just kidding. You're not going to do that. Uh, Helping with the technology, Uh, but glad to have Larry back. Looking forward to the class. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for uh, bringing us together and binding us together as the body of Christ. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and fill this place and that we might have uh, the eyes of our hearts open, that we might behold you and, Lord, uh, find you uh, as we are the ones who are lost. We pray for Larry, that his words might be your words, and that, indeed, we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I
1: pulled up to the Tom and Jerry. Um, I was on my way out of town, so I was getting gas.
2: Pretty afternoon, we were just headed to uh, <coughs> you know, headed to some yard sales, right, and we had just left my house. I lived down the street from the scene, and uh, we were in front of Tom and Jerry's at that intersection that I walk through almost every day.
1: I was sitting in my car with the door open and kind of just looking around. We were looking at each other, saying, you know, let's go eat lunch here. After we finished, and I happened to glance over at the intersection that's just right there.
2: I feel like I saw the cyclist entering the intersection in, in, in my peripheral vision.
1: And I think I sort of stuck looking over there because I saw the cyclist coming down the hill really fast. And as soon as we said that, we heard a really loud
3: crash. I just remember like brakes, mm-hmm. brakes, and a huge
1: crash
2: which was like a car crash, just bang. And then I think I remember hearing the cyclist' head hit the car.
1: More than anything, I just remember seeing how high he went into the air.
2: He went from going forward to going up, way up, very high in the air. Just
3: seeing this guy fly through the air, it took me a while to even realize that was a person. It just looked like a rag doll going through the air, and then just plummet down. And I didn't see... The guy hit the ground, I just knew that he had, and you could hear it. Crashing onto the ground, like crashing and sliding onto the ground. It was scary.
2: He just kind of landed like a sack of potatoes and slid down the street a little, a little ways.
1: Kind of facing me, but just not moving at all. I was just frozen, and I was like shaking.
2: Emily just started screaming at me, really, just stop the car, stop the car. I remember immediately being surprised that his head wasn't, was still intact. I mean, it was that bad.
1: I was in shock.
2: My first immediate thought was, oh my God, that man's dead.
1: And I just remember kind of standing there just becoming so emotional because I didn't know if I was looking at somebody who had just died. I picked up
2: and fumbled with my phone and I
1: was trying to dial 911 and I kept getting a busy signal.
2: I I remember grabbing his wrist and trying to feel a pulse and couldn't feel anything, feeling of his neck and couldn't feel anything.
3: I could see the guy lying on the ground and I could see another guy over him. And then Austin ran there and I just kind of...
2: Right when I started doing chest compressions is when the first bystander came up to help. When I ran over, the um,
4: one guy was performing CPR and then... He sort of coughed and started breathing. All we can do is call 911 and stabilize his head.
3: It kind of felt like time slowed down. I
4: just stood at the guy's head and hold it basically in place and keep the airway open. That's when he started
1: moaning. The only word I can think of is pain... For that sound. That's the sound that a person makes when they're dying. Just intense,
3: intense pain. Just, I never heard anything like it in my life. Almost like a wounded animal, just a very um, raw sound.
2: When he started making that noise, that was awful.
3: And this thick, long, I mean, I didn't know that you could live with that much blood, you know, blood outside of your body just trickling, I mean... Mm -hmm. Thick, just slowly seeping out,
1: just like syrup.
2: It really struck me that it broke the carbon fiber bicycle in half.
1: Just kind of a mangled mix of metal.
2: The car looked like a tree had fallen on it. I
4: see these teeth that I think are missing in the mouth because there's just there seems to be just no jaw there almost. It's, it was incredible. Very, it was really traumatic.
3: made me feel helpless because I could not... You know just useless and helpless because I couldn't do anything more for this guy.
4: I think it was probably around ten to fifteen minutes from when I arrived and an ambulance was able to get there.
1: I just had to call my family afterwards and um, tell them what I had just seen this person could not have lived through this.
4: I thought because he hit his head so hard on the ground that the that blood would start pooling in the brain and put too much pressure on the brain. I thought, He would die from brain damage.
2: He's not going to make it.
5: Well, good morning. (laughs) As you can see, um, I did make it. And this morning, I'm talking about the problem... Of suffering, God and the problem of suffering. Now, I want to begin by saying a few things um, at the outset to help frame um, this talk. First of all, I presuppose the existence of God in this talk. I'm, I'm, I presuppose that I'm speaking, one hopes, uh, to believers um, this morning. <clears throat> Secondly, I want to acknowledge that 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 suffering comes in oh so many forms. Um, it's not merely physical, it um, uh, may be emotional. Uh, it may be caused by evil, or it may be caused by uh, some sort of natural disaster. Um, it, you may suffer in silence, um, or it might be, as it was in my case, something that was very, very public. And uh, I, I recognize this morning that there are many of you uh, in this room who have suffered greatly, and it comes in, uh, uh, as I say, many forms. And um, I hope that the words that I uh, offer you this morning are of some comfort to you, because you see, the problem of suffering um, is, uh, is deemed to be um, one of those things that's the headshot on Christianity, for those who are critics of our faith. They look at it and they say, Um, uh, you, you, you cannot resolve the tension here. You believe that God is real, check. You believe that God is good, check. You believe that God is sovereign, check. And here's why I got you. You believe that he allows suffering. How in the world can the Christian God be both good and sovereign and allow suffering? A Gordian Knot that you can never untie, or so some would have us believe. Five days before this accident, um, I was debating an atheist by the name of Michael Shermer in Seattle, and um, that debate went, we think, uh, reasonably well, even if there weren't very many Christians in that audience, and uh, this happened on October 10th. And uh, while I was yet in ICU and I spent a fair amount of time in uh, ICU um, here at, uh, at UAB, uh, Michael uh, began sending emails and then has put on the internet something called uh, an open letter, letter to Larry Taunton uh, in which he is challenging me to debate this very issue, God and the problem of, of suffering, because he was sure... You know, this will be like shooting fish in a barrel, and I I recall vaguely replying to Michael, Michael, you're practically chasing my ambulance. Um, could I could I perhaps recover and get out of the hospital before we have this debate, or perhaps that's the way he figured he could win, um, but. Uh, this, is, this is the way many see the problem. And what saddens me, it's the way many Christians also see the problem. Maybe they never quite say it, but they, uh, they think it. And it's interesting to me that the Judeo-Christian explanation of suffering alone, among all the religious explanations of suffering, sees God as sovereign. Every other, every other religious explanation gives God an out by not making him, him a sovereign god. He is uh, something like Captain America. You know, he's, he's a good guy, and he's very powerful, you know, uh, in superhero kind of fashion, but things happen in, in the world that he just didn't see coming or couldn't control because he was too busy, you know, trying to prevent this disaster over here, and hence couldn't, couldn't solve that one. But Christianity... Does not see God that way. And not only that, what's interesting is that Scripture doesn't always make the kind of effort we would like to resolve the tension. Meaning, Scripture is unashamedly um, uh, presents God as all powerful and presents and and, and allows suffering. I mean, uh, isn't it interesting that the moral law? is set right beside those passages that are referred to as the violence passages in the Old Testament. When I addressed the issue of of Old Testament violence, it occurred to me, Larry, don't, don't approach this subject as though you have to apologize for God. It's clear God is not apologetic for it himself. He says, this is who I am. Don't make me into a cosmic Santa Claus. Because it's not who I am. As I was, well, before I get to that, I was, um, I have no recollection of the accident itself. I was unconscious on the scene. The car, uh, as has been described, um, did indeed look like a tree had fallen on it. The, uh, The windshield and the roof of the car were collapsed. The car had to be towed from the scene. Of course, so did I. Um. I can recall um, vaguely uh, regaining consciousness in the ambulance and a woman, uh, I I have this image of her holding my shoulders and looking down at me and commanding me, look at me, look at me, stay with me, stay with me. And uh, this is, uh, you know, if there's any comedy in any of this, and I assure you there's very little I can remember that my instinct was that I wanted to please her, that I wanted to be obedient to what she was telling me to do, and I was trying, and I lost consciousness again. And then, when I came to, it was when they were moving me off of the gurney onto a stainless steel table in the emergency room of the sort that you might butcher meat on, and uh, and I screamed with agony. Um, my jaw was shattered it was split here and that by the way this has been heavily edited so that you don't um, uh, pass out Um, but it looked like all my teeth were missing because my jaw was split wide open Um, I was I have to say this I was doing uh, Eric Metaxas's radio show in New York which I do again tomorrow if you know who I'm talking about and during a commercial break Eric said to me Larry could you back away from the mic a bit we're getting feedback as though you had a metal jaw and I said well Actually, I do. Um, I have a metal plate in here with four screws that, no kidding, look like they're wood screws bought from Lowe's, but, um, but they probably picked them up there and then you know marked them up just a little bit. But um, um, anyway, um, every single rib on the right side of my body was broken, most of them multiple times. My shoulder was broken in two places, my hand, my neck broken in three places, my back in four um a skull fracture that i still suffer from and a whole bunch of other things i just can't remember but in short um 22 broken bones in all most of those bones broken multiple times and as i'm laying there on this table and i just see silhouettes you know because of the lights shining into my eyes and um blood is pooling in my eyes and they're sticky and i'm i'm trying to figure out what is going on, and a physician is um, shouting um, expletives, um, and I can't stop the bleeding. I can't stop the bleeding. And I remember saying, cut me, Mick, cut me. Um, You know, some of you will recall that that's a reference to, to Rocky. Some of you are too young for that, but my eyes just, I just remember thinking, I must look like Rocky Balboa. Um, my eyes, and, uh, and, and he laughed, and um, it seemed to bring the, the stress level down just a little bit, um, but I remember that I, I could feel that I was just smashed in body, just smashed, and uh, I would be, uh, you know, taken, of course, to ICU, and uh, my physicians and nurses have since, I've made a point of going back and finding them all and thanking them, for their excellent care. Um, and they really did. It was, it, um, it meant a lot to me that my survival mattered to them. You know, it doesn't always, you know, my wife is, is a career nurse and, um, you know, she can tell you some pretty horrible stories about the way people behave around those who are suffering. And, uh, and it, you can become very calloused to it, and the fact that uh, it it seemed to matter to these physicians and uh, to my nurses that I live, but they have since told me they didn't think I would live. Um, but I slowly began to improve, and then on day five, when they were moving me, which was the the worst, um, when they would have to roll me, um, because I was just that shattered. And um, the when they would come in, they'd say, you know, really, do you want to go to your left or your right? And I'd say, well. There really isn't a good side here. Um, Okay, we're going to roll one, two, and I say on on three, or is it one, two, three, actually four? (laughs) You know, because I'll do the counting Uh, because it was horrible. And while they were moving me, um, one of my ribs severed an artery, and they didn't know it at first, but then my blood pressure began to plummet, my oxygenation. My wife, Lori, tells me that All of a sudden, they came in. They did a quick uh, uh, CT scan, and they brought in clipboards and had her signing everything. And she said the next thing she knew, I was wheeled out. And she was sure that she wouldn't see me again. Um, uh, It was clear I was dying. And uh, and it was because uh, I was bleeding internally severely. And uh, my physician, who looked like she's about, well, she doesn't look like it. She is 28, but she looks like she's about 16. Um, decided there was not enough time for surgery, and so she did an emergency bedside chest tube. And they pumped out two and a half liters of blood from my chest. Um, And uh, that saved my life. But the point is, I know a little bit about suffering. And uh, I've addressed this topic so many times. But it uh, often felt a little like... Uh, you know, if you're familiar with the work of of C.S. Lewis, I'm not checking my email, by the way. <laughs> I am uh, getting that right there. That's pretty handy. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote about the problem of suffering twice. He, the first time he wrote about it, was in a book called The Problem of Pain, and uh, it's it's excellent. He says a lot of really good things, but it says a guy who's watching, you know, with with a kind of emotional detachment and distance from the suffering, those who suffer, and offering theological explanations. And then many years later, he wrote A Grief Observed. And that's different. Um, It feels different. It's emotionally charged. It's a man who is suffering. He's watching his wife die. And um, certainly there's great suffering in that, just as I knew there was for my family and for my staff and for others. Um, the Lord gave me a lot of time to think about this, this issue. First of all, I want to tell you that I never doubted the Lord ever. Maybe that's a spiritual gift. At no point in my life have I ever doubted the existence of God. I've never found the arguments for God's non-existence compelling. I generally find them silly. Uh, You have to be very clever to construct arguments to say God is not real. I mean, it takes an intellectual to convince you of the obvious or to convince themselves of the obvious, hence the reason that the psalmist says the fool says in his heart there is no God. He has to suppress what his senses, what his own conscience is telling him is true because God is, as Romans 2.15 says, God has written his law upon the hearts of men. He's made it clear to them that he's real, that he's there. And I didn't doubt that God was sovereign. I didn't doubt that God was in control. Um, I don't, I, I've never, I haven't really even suffered with the uh, the issue of why I'm going through all of it, and uh, there are a variety of reasons for that, but um, I, I recall what Don Carson, the theologian, has said, and Don Carson was once a pastor, and I think that's significant. Um, uh, he says that that in a Christian's darkest hours, they don't want to know that their faith is consistent. They want God himself. Boy, is that so very true. I think if the Lord had said to me, Larry, here's what I was doing. That driver of the car didn't know me. And this was my way of getting his attention. I, I don't know if I'd have just said, well, glad I could help out. You know what I mean? I uh, mean, <laughs> You know, I'm not sure that an answer as such would have been the thing that would have made me feel wonderful. Rather, I found myself searching the scriptures, you know, late at night, and it was at night. Night was the worst because I tried to keep people with me, you know, talking with me, but like lights, they just eventually just go out, and it's because at night, it felt like the demons of hell just came out and oppressed me, and my pain ramped up at night because I didn't have any distractions and because I felt like I was alone in the world sleeping, uh, not sleeping rather. And with the sound of the helicopter, I was on the top floor of the sound. It was just near the helicopter pad, the, the helicopter, you know, bringing in other people like me, just, you know, as is there, is there, is there, they're coming in and thinking about these things, thinking about these issues. And what did the Lord teach me in the midst of my own suffering? Well, I took Great comfort rather than it being something that upset me, that unsettled me. I took extraordinary comfort in the knowledge that God is sovereign. Um, why? Because I don't want to serve a Captain America like God. I want to know that he, he has purposes in all things and that He does control things. I want to know that He's a God with a capital G. That mattered to me. In scripture, Scripture is clear on this. Psalms 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Job 42.2 says that no purpose of God's can be thwarted. This means that nothing, absolutely nothing happens in this life that He does not cause or allow. And some would say that that's, you know, that's just semantics. I don't think so. I think the distinction is important. There is a difference between what he causes and what he he allows. Now, for some of you, this may unsettle you, but it shouldn't. It should provide comfort to you. I would have it no other way. I currently live with a very rare type of skull fracture. Until 94, there were only uh, 57 known cases of people to, it's an occipital condyle fracture, Um, to have it and survive. It's like I won the Powerball from hell. but, um, (laughs) Or as Rick Burgess has said to me, from heaven perhaps. But I take comfort. I trust in the knowledge that my life is in his hands. Now, it's no less true of your life than it is of mine. I just have a very physical reminder of it. The reality is he has numbered all of our days. He, has, he knows the, 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 has counted the hair on your head. He has counted every breath you will take. He knows the moment he will take you from this life. And for me, there's something very comforting in that knowledge, that my God is sovereign. He controls all things. I also trusted in the fact that, as Romans eight twenty eight tells us, we know that in all things God works for the purpose of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. This verse is a cultural favorite and is one of the most misquoted and misapplied verses in Scripture. Uh, it's, it, it has become so popular that it penetrated secular culture. I hear unbelievers kind of sort of quote it and saying, well, all things work together for good. I say, not for you. (laughs) It might just be crap for you. There's no no promise of that for you. The verse. The verse doesn't say all things. It's just not a, a blanket. Everything works together for good. No, it's for those who love him. Who are called according to his purposes. If you know Jesus Christ, whatever you have suffered, one day God is going to reveal to you what he was doing in it. Take comfort in that. For me, that's good. It's almost, you know, it's like the, the hood of, but you know, looking under the hood of my my truck. I don't exactly know what's going on in there. I have some vague ideas of how you know an internal combustion engine works. Fuel injection. But I kind of look under there sort of close the hood and say, look, I know when I turn the key, or as it is now, push the button, it, it goes. And I'm confident in that. I don't feel a need to have every single answer ad- a- addressed. If my God could fit into my finite brain, he's not God. You need to understand that. If you understood everything about God, where's the mystery? That's part of the majesty, the wonder of the God that we serve. But God is working his purposes in your life. I was also confronted with the fact that without him, I can do nothing. John 15, 5 tells us this. It's mostly a reference there to spiritual things. We're dead without Christ. We're raised with him spiritually. Our lives are regenerated in him. But there's a very physical reality to this. Hebrews 1.3 says he sustains the universe by the word of his power. Meaning that, 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 that you know, the universe as we know it would explode like the Death Star if it weren't for the fact that God sustains it. He gives life and breath to Everything. And without him, we can do nothing. As I'm laying there in that hospital bed, I couldn't even move my head. The pillow, how how poignant is this, had become a tormentor to me. A pillow. Because the little spot on the back of my head where my head laid on that pillow would ache because I couldn't move it or put my arms up to fluff it or anything. And my nurse's as I was talking to them, recently said, you know, it was sweet. You would ask us to lift your head and just rub it a little bit and then put it back down. My head hurts so much. And I was reminded that without him I could do nothing. I'm a proud man. I'm used to Being physically strong, self-reliant, self-motivated, driven, in control of my environment, and bam! In an instant, I'm in control of nothing. I'm only barely aware that there's anything. In that moment, I'm aware of all of you here right now. So, uh, I learned that spiritual attacks come at our lowest points in our suffering. That's why I say that it was at night that it felt like the demons of hell crawled out of the woodwork in loneliness. There's loneliness often in pain. And it's because other people, however much they might want to understand what we're going through, simply can't. And it's in those moments that you begin to understand what the psalmist means when he He speaks of the Lord being his shepherd as he walks through what? The valley of the shadow of death. In your pain, that's, that's where you're going. And others can't go with you, but the Lord can. And he is who you want to have with you. Seek him in your suffering. I learned that there is great mystery in suffering. God's purposes are revealed to us something like an iceberg. I could just leave it like that and let you all ponder it and think it's very profound. But, you know, an iceberg only reveals one-ninth of its total mass above water. Its great mass is beneath the water. It's where we can't see it. I think that God in his purposes reveals to us just a little of what he's doing. Don't speak too confidently about all that God's doing in, in your own suffering, meaning you might have a glimpse of it, but I suspect there's, there will be more that we will discover in the hereafter. There's great mystery in it, in, uh, in, in God's purposes in general, and he only gives us glimpses of it. Scripture tells us that now, 1 Corinthians 13, that now we see but through a glass darkly. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part. Then we shall know in full. How wonderful is that? Rather than feeling that you need to have neat and tidy answers for everything, be contented with that which God reveals to you. And he does reveal some of his purposes. Not always immediately, sometimes later. I'm still unpacking so much that I've been through in the, uh, the last seven months. I'm still learning. But I only see part of God's purposes. And I look forward to that day uh, in eternity when he pulls back the curtain and says, here's what I was doing. Here's what I did. Here's the, mar- my, the, the majesty of my plan of all that I was accomplishing. And I don't really have the time to go through all that I would like to say on a topic as complex as this, but this is the most important point I think I can make. You cannot possibly hope to understand God's purposes in suffering if you do not know God. That's why critics outside of the Christian faith won't ever get it, because they don't know him. Um, while I, I, I have many sleepless nights these days, and I usually look for something happy and light on TV. ESPN, Looney Tunes is always nice. <laughs> but one night, while I was, as yet after I left the hospital, I um, for two months, was still in a recliner because I couldn't, I couldn't lay down. And if I got there, I couldn't get back up without help. And uh, I came across the film Skyfall, the James Bond movie, which I'd seen many times. And I won't ask you how many have seen it because you probably won't admit to it. But it struck me in a way that had never hit me before in watching it. And the premise of the film, if you haven't seen it, is the, there's this evil character named, named Silva, who's formerly a, 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 an agent of the British Secret Service, and he's bent on, you know, as they all are, you know, controlling the world. You know, they're never contented with an island or a planet or anything like that. They got to have the whole enchilada. And uh, Silva is bent on rule of the world, and he's bent on destroying. Um, his former employer, M, played by Judi Dench. She's the head of the Secret Service. And she has another servant, and that servant is, of course, 007, James Bond. And Silva captures Bond, and he ties him to a chair, and he paces around in front of him, and he strings together a narrative of M that is as dark as could be. You know, she toppled these regimes, she's laundered money here, she's done this, she's done that, she's wicked, she's evil. James, you're on the wrong side. Join me. He never really offers any intellectual uh, response at all. He's just simply unpersuaded by the argument. And he remains faithful to M. But it's a story of faith at the end. He's chosen to believe her. And he's taken a tack that says, you don't know her. I do. And you can string together all these, uh, these, these dark facts and paint her and her character, as, as, as smear her as much as you like, but I know her. And that's not her. So no, I will not be moved. And it struck me in that moment, wow, how interesting. The Sylvan in my life seems to be Michael Sharmer. That was funny, by the way. (laughs) Larry, you're on the wrong side. His open letter, which you can find on the internet, why didn't God lift your bike over the car if he's so good? Why didn't he divert the car? So there was someone there who prayed for you. Why didn't God just prevent it in the first place? You're serving the wrong side. Join me. And I thought, you don't know my God. Worse, you have grossly misinterpreted him. Ladies and gentlemen, You and I, we are all products of an Epicurean culture. This problem, the problem of God and suffering, is a uniquely Western one. You do not find Chinese or African Christians, as a rule, struggling with these issues. You just don't. And the Epicureans, just so you'll know, don't confuse them with hedonists. Hedonists are all about the excitement of the senses. They're all about pleasure. Epicureans, a philosophical sect of Jesus' time, they approached the problem from the opposite side. And they weren't about pleasure, per se. They were about the avoidance of pain, subtle but important difference. They were about comfort. (laughs) And while we have many hedonists within our culture, Fort Lauderdale and Spring Break, um, we are all essentially Epicureans. Because what you, it wouldn't have ever been put to you as crass as this, but we've all more or less been taught that the meaning of life is this. Get a good education for the first 20-some-odd years of your life. Why? So that you can get a good job. Why? So that you can make a good salary. Why? So that you can have a nice income. Why? So that you can be comfortable. And coast into the grave as comfortably as possible. That's a successful life by Western standards. And if you take that grid, the Epicurean grid, and you try to impose that over Scripture, you will understand nothing of God's purposes. He is not an Epicurean God. Surely, as the Passover and as the flood and uh, as the killing of the the Egyptian firstborn, so forth, all make clear. Jesus' own death on the cross makes that clear. That's not what he's about. I love what Russian novelist and Nobel Prize winner, and by the way, no discussion on suffering is complete without quoting a Russian. Um, (laughs) Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, and that is this, the meaning of earthly existence lies, not as we have grown used to thinking, that is in prospering, but in the development of the soul. That is straight on biblical, ladies and gentlemen. And so why does the Lord allow our suffering? In part, to develop our souls. It might be to develop the souls of others. His purposes for believers are very different than it is for unbelievers. Scripture makes very clear, God killed Saul. It says it just as plain as that. God's purposes in our lives are very different. As I was laying in the hospital... One day, a physician came in and he did this. These chairs may be too heavy for me to do it, but he, he walked into the, uh, to my room and he grabbed a chair and kept walking and he <laughs> slid a chair like that and then he plopped down in it. And I didn't recognize him. He said, I did the surgery on your jaw. And as we're doing the surgery, somebody said, we need to make this guy look good. He does TV and that sort of thing. <laughs> and someone else said, I've heard him on Rick and Baba and someone else said, you know, did you see that interview on whatever? And I thought, who is this guy? He said, so I left, and I Googled you. And I decided I wanted to come and talk to you. So I went, I grew up an evangelical Christian, um, but my faith took a beating in medical school. I had no real answers. And I'm fighting my way back. And I'm going to sit here. I'm, a, I'm a in, doing my residency. And I'm going to sit here for as long as you stay awake. And ask you questions. I said, you know, I'm on about 50% horsepower right now. Because you have me on Neurotin, <laughs> Oxycodone, and Morphine. <laughs> so if that's acceptable, he said, I'll take what you can give. <laughs> and for hours, he just asked me questions. And I thought the Lord has given me just a little glimpse of the the top of the iceberg of some of his purposes in this. I've also noticed that in speaking to the issue of suffering, people pay attention more than they ever did when I talked about it before. But let me leave you with this, and Ben's going to play you a little something else here, and then I'll have some closing remarks. The Lord is present in your suffering whether he ends it or not. He is just as present. Remember that. And while we speak of, and we see so much suffering and evil in the world today, as Ben will show you, it's worth remembering that God can and does sometimes choose to save in this life. He always saves those who believe in him in the next life. But as Daniel chapter 3 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God is able to save. Ben,
1: All of a sudden, it just kind of seemed like out of nowhere there was a nun there.
4: There's actually a nun that was praying over us. and
1: You know, I'm not even sure where she was coming from.
2: She had her rosary in her hand and she was praying.
4: It was almost surreal, like you could almost see in a movie.
1: At that moment is when
3: I um, looked up and took a picture just because I take pictures of everything. And you almost had the leadership of the nun. People were kind of in a loose circle and just staring at the cyclist and just silently praying. And the nun was the closest mm-hmm. and really you could tell putting thought into this and just saying every prayer she knew.
1: And then finally when he came around I kind of felt relief that he would survive somehow.
0: And then I remember that first little glimmer uh, of, of thinking I will, how could he even be doing this he he made a joke that he was certain the person that hit him was a Muslim and uh, at that point I was like cuz I didn't even know a sentence could come out of the face that I was looking at
2: it's a miracle that man's alive I think was my exact words it's a miracle that man's alive he was dead when I when I when he hit the ground
0: when I went to see him in the hospital and he was they were getting him out of the bed and I mean and I looked at his face, and I saw him stand, and and we began to talk about football, and and I thought to myself, this is like talking to Lazarus. I mean, this this is uh, I cannot believe you're alive, and it looks like you you may actually survive.
5: Thank you, Benjamin. Um... Thank you so much for having me this morning. Um, uh, just a quick word before you um, run off. There's, uh, I, I've put in the, uh, the, the chairs, we have two brochures, one that tells you about something called the Fixed Point Institute for Applied Apologetics, which is going on this summer um, at our retreat center in the south of France um, called La Bastide, which you can visit. You can email our site. We offer tours and opportunities for you to come. And then I brochure. I made sure that I wore the same jacket and even pocket square today that's in on the brochure. <laughs> um, uh, Fixed Point Foundation, um, we need your help. And uh, we are supported. Uh, this past week, I was on BBC, MSNBC, um, Fox, uh, uh, um, a variety of other places, CNN International, debating Muslims and many others. And uh, we're not paid for that. We're supported by good people like you. And if you believe in the work that we do, uh, please consider supporting this ministry. Inside this brochure, there's, a, there's, a, there's an envelope. Don't feel like you have to duck me if you don't. Um, but uh, if you believe that what we do is important, is significant, please think about supporting that work. And uh, you also get on our mailing list by going to the website. So again, thank you so much for having me. Let me close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here this morning in Your name and reflect on Your Word and Your purposes. Father, I know that there are people within the sound of my voice who have truly suffered, uh, and are suffering silently. And Father, I pray that You would comfort them, that You would remind them that You are the God who is not silent. You are there, and You are real. Uh, And Father, that You are sovereign, You are in control of all things, and that You love them, and that it's Your desire to work Your purposes in their lives, and that it is our calling, our purpose, to be obedient no matter what the circumstance and no matter how unknown the outcome. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.